Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today's guest, we have Alex Kogan. Alex is the president of Ashland Capital Fund and has 20 years of experience in real estate, construction, and development. He started his career in Colorado, founding his own high-end construction company and grew it to be the largest and most successful firm in Southwest Colorado. Over the last 15 years, Alex has successfully completed several townhome, mixed-use, and single-family developments. Additionally, he owns over 1,700 apartment units as an LP, co-GP, and KP. We're so excited to have you on the show today, Alex. How are you doing? Doing great. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. So before we get started, can you share a little bit more about your background and just how you got started in real estate? Sure. I guess it all starts, I grew up in a family that were still are all real estate investors, builders, developers. So it, it runs in my family. I took a detour and ended up teaching high school for about a year and a half and wanted to save the world and all that. And, and after about a year and a half, I realized that I wasn't happy teaching. And you know, of course, by default, got back into you know what my family did. And I, at the time I was in Arizona teaching and ended up uh, spending a lot of time in Colorado and decided it was a great time and place to open up a construction company and real estate investment company, basically a sister company. And yeah, so that was late 98. And that's how, that's how I got into it. Literally just started a company that grew and grew and grew and had a great ride. Awesome. So are you still doing the construction company today? No, actually December of last year, I had a successful exit and we sold the company. So yeah, I had a, for the last three years, my family and I moved back to Chicago. So we've been living here and I had a great team running my company and was able to sell that last year. So for the last few years, Personally, my time has been spent on apartments. Made the transition from construction, single family development into multifamily several years ago. And how did you start getting into multifamily? Like what was the turning point for you and how were you introduced to it? Yeah. Well, I guess early on in Durango and Colorado, I we 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 did some some smaller multifamily, but they were not for rent, they were for sale products. So, you know, I was introduced to it then. My family has had some rentals and so you just sort of uh, see it and I was always interested in having passive cash flow. So got introduced to it early on in terms of smaller multifamilies and looked at some larger opportunities throughout the years, but was just so busy with running a company and managing my own portfolio of single family duplexes, triplexes. I just didn't really have time to to pivot into multifamily. And then about four or five years ago, I forget why it was probably a podcast. It was a conference. I I can't even remember the first time the the light bulb went off that, you know, I need to scale my business into, into multifamily and start divesting of all the single family and smaller multis that I owned. So then how many single families did you get up to before you started divesting into multifamily? It was probably 30, 40, yeah, maybe closer to even to 50 units that I owned over the years. I owned some commercial, some college rentals, duplexes, condos, townhomes, you name it, I've owned it. 
So I still do own a few in Colorado that I'm trying to sell, and then I'll be completely done with all that madness and uh, <laughs> only own larger multifamilies. Thank you for sharing that. And so as you're looking for the multifamily, what markets are you looking at currently and which market do you primarily like to invest in? We like the Southeast a lot. We are closing on a deal in Greenville, South Carolina, closing on a deal in Little Rock, Arkansas. So we like the Southeast a lot. We're looking there constantly. I'm based out of Chicago, so there's parts of the Midwest that I like a lot as well. So we are looking, and that's obviously closer to home and easier to get to, and Texas. So own a couple of assets in San Antonio. We are looking at some deals in Dallas as well. Although uh, Texas is a pretty competitive market right now, so it's harder to find good deals. But yeah, I'd say Midwest, Southeast, a little bit of Texas. And so as you're looking for the different markets, what are the primary key metrics that are you're looking for? You know, it's, it's really the same metrics, I think, that a lot of investors look for. It's a compelling story of job growth, employment growth, and supply. So I think there's smaller markets where you tend to find maybe less population growth, less employment growth, but you do find a deficit on the supply side. So it's a tight market and even a little bit of, of employment or population growth just stresses the market. So those are some of the indicators, of course, that we look for. But in general, good employment growth, good population growth, and then employment diversity is also important. We've looked at some markets where they're really reliant on one or two industries, and, and that has a little bit more risk attached. So not that we won't look there, but everything that we look at, we look through how much risk is there and how much reward. So if there's enough upside, we'll look at a little bit of risk, but generally we're pretty conservative investors. We'd rather have less risk, less upside, but know that our investment is safe and we'll, we'll take a little bit less of a return just for the safety. And so has your market analysis strategy changed from prior COVID to today? It has, but I would say it is it's sort of a, a short-term pivot. So as we're looking at, at opportunities today, we're looking at the short term. We're, we're saying, you know, is this particular demographic affected by COVID? Are they restaurant workers? Are they in gaming? I mean, what what is the demographic? So I would say on a longer term, call it a two-year cycle, it's still the same markets we're looking at, same analysis, but it really, what it does mostly is change our underwriting. So if we think that a certain demographic is affected by retail, then we're going to have a high delinquency rate written into our underwriting, for example. So we are going to you know, have a business plan that is specific to what we see going on, but we're certainly not, the world hasn't changed. You just have to underwrite differently for the next 12 months as we get through this. That makes sense. And so I wanted to go back a little bit as you're making the transition from single family to the multifamily. What has been the biggest challenge from when you're making that change? Uh, good question. You know, I'd say when I was uh, a single family owner, operator, investor, most of what I did was in my back door. So, you know, that that obviously is easy, easiest to do. While you can scale and you can own assets all over the country, you have to have a good property manager, obviously, but you don't have to live there. So on the one hand, it's easier to pivot and scale the multifamily from that respect, but you still have to go out to the asset. So in COVID times, really the challenge we're having is, you know, I can't just jump on a plane 
and go visit that asset, meet with the property manager or whatever needs to happen. So that's certainly been a challenge during COVID. I think when you look at a brand new market in multifamily, I think that's another challenge where you really have to know sub-markets. You really have to know all the dynamics, the employment base. So there's a learning curve ramping up to specific markets where, again, in the single family space, it's typically in your back door, you know it like the back of your hand. So those are they're probably the two current challenges, which obviously you can overcome, and which, which really is a result of continuing to look in that market, continuing to underwrite, continuing to study it until you're, you know, you're really comfortable that you're ready to buy and execute your business plan. That makes sense. Can you share a little bit about the first deal that you did? How many units was it? And what are some of the challenges you faced as you were purchasing that first larger multifamily? Yeah, I would say one of the first ones that we bought was in San Antonio, Texas. You know, I had had good partners, still have good partners. So there wasn't really a challenge in the acquisition. There were some challenges that we've experienced as of late as a result of COVID in terms of some of the collections, but it's been, we, we, we anticipated the worst and it's actually a lot better than we anticipated. So we didn't do distributions for the last six months, just holding on to cash to make sure that people pay their rent and we have enough cash flow in the business. So in retrospect, it was a, it was a good decision and we're getting through really well. That's probably the biggest challenge of the projects to date. I could think of in the past, we maybe another uh, interesting challenge. We had an asset under contract that experienced two shootings in one week. Yeah. So that was a challenge because all of a sudden we had a lender that didn't like the deal all of a sudden because there was issues. So they ended up coming back and wanting to restructure their entire lending package, a lot less leverage. We got nervous, investors got nervous. Ultimately, we ended up terminating that deal. So that was one of the earlier challenges that we experienced in in buying multis, which candidly, you you can't foresee, you can't control, but it's something that could happen. One of the things that you mentioned was on one of the earlier deals was the collections process of it. What were some of the strategies that you implemented in order to increase the collections? It's really good communication with the tenants and, and not let things just sort of by default say it's COVID and they're not paying. So working with them to come up with a payment plan, working with them to provide them resources. There's a number of different agencies that have been providing help to the renters. So just making sure they have the resources available to them and literally holding their hand and navigating that process for them. So that's, that's probably the, been the most successful. And then understanding who is truly affected by COVID and who is not. Because as you can imagine, there's people that are taking advantage of this situation and they continue to work or continue to work part-time and, and, and had the means necessary to pay but chose not to. So you you know you have to really be involved at that kind of granular level and unfortunately evict when you're able to and but more often than not work with your your tenants and come up with a payment plan and get get assistance. So then how closely are you working with the property manager versus managing it yourself? Sure. So we currently I would say it's sort of a hybrid if you will. We hire third-party property managers on some of our assets. And then a couple of my assets, I have a partner who we're, we're, you know, we're both sponsors, co, co-general partners on the deal, and they have a vertically integrated property management company. So they're, they're, their company is a property manager. So on the, on the deals where my partner is actually a property manager, we trust them 
we have full visibility into what's going on. There's less sort of work on our, our end of it. In the case that it's truly a third-party property manager, we're in contact every week, sometimes daily, depending on what's going on. It's much more heavy during a reposition if we're doing a value-add program for changing the tenant base. It, it's, it's very heavy, heavy involvement with them. Once things get stabilized, it, it is a standing phone call once a week, but it's less intense unless less things aren't going well. What kind of expectations are you looking for from the property managers as you're touching base with them weekly? Well, good reporting. We want to know what's going on. How is uh, pre-leasing? How is collections? Any kind of CapEx projects? How that's going? What's happening in the market? Those are the, the basic basic things that that we cover. Great. And so after getting your feet wet with a couple of multifamilies, how have you been able to build traction to now owning over 1,700 apartments in different capacities? Well, part of it, it was just probably the biggest thing is just the commitment to do it and to have enough hours in the day to do it. So I have largely been focused full time for the last several years. While still owning another company, I had a great management team that ran that company. So spending the time to develop relationships with brokers, spending the time to develop relationships with other sponsors that we will sponsor and partner on a deal together. We also have an associate of mine that spends all day, five days a week, making 200 phone calls a day to off-market properties, so mom and pop owners. So all those things combined, really, it's, it's, not, it's not one. It's effort and some strategic initiatives that have allowed Ashland Capital to scale. Recently brought a guy that spent some time with a Chicago private private equity real estate firm to join Ashland Capital. So it's you know bringing on the right team and and just being focused to to growing a business that's really no different than when I started my my first company 20 years ago really the same principles as running a business. Thank you. So would you also be able to share a little bit, you mentioned about the off-market deals. How have you been able to force those deals? And has it been more difficult now to kind of, as you're going through the off-market deals, being able to close on one of those? Yeah. So really, you know, really two ways is, you know, we identify certain markets, we identify certain sub-markets, we identify certain assets. So we'll filter through really, and it's, you know, it's going to be pretty laser focused to the type of assets that we want to buy. And then it's, it's literally just getting on the phone and calling these guys. It's a very difficult job. So we have a guy who has a specific personality that can do this, but it's somebody that could take 199 no's a day or even more aggressive than just a no. It's, it's people telling you, uh, you know, where to go and you just, you just keep going. And it's that one might happen once a week. It might happen 10 times a week that you actually get somebody that's engaged and wants to have a discussion. And those kind of relationships take time. When you call somebody out of the blue that and you say, hey, do you want to sell your apartment? They're generally not, not prepared. So that's a conversation you might have for months. So we've got a whole CRM process of tracking those and calling calling in a week, calling in a month, calling in six months, whatever is appropriate relative to that conversation. So that that's been good, although it you know it, it it has its pros and cons. So those type of sellers generally, as a rule of thumb, are less sophisticated. Their books, their their business is not in a sort of nice, pretty package as you would find from a broker. So. It takes more work to sift through it, figure out, you know, what's happening with the business, what's happening with the asset, financials, et cetera. But oftentimes you can uncover a great deal and there's no competition or very low competition. Additionally, for off market, it's really, 
getting a look at a deal when a broker is bringing it to market right away. And you are one of one, two, three groups that gets a look. Those are also very good opportunities. And the asset that we are getting ready to close on in Greenville, South Carolina, that's the way that opportunity came to us. They, they brought it to two groups and we actually were willing to go hard on our earnest money day one, which of course is nerve wracking because you don't know what you don't know. But we actually knew the market well and we were confident that nothing that we would discover would be fatal. We wouldn't move forward if, some, if we moved some, you know, found something fatal, but it worked out. We got the deal and we're about to close. Oh, congratulations on that. Yeah. And so how do you know, you mentioned you were of two groups. Is that something that the brokers usually provide the information or is it something that you find out along the way? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's something early on that I think, you know, most good brokers will tell you, like, we're showing this to two groups, put in, if you're interested, put in your best and final, willing to give you guys a shot before we, we take it to market. So uh, yeah, generally the reputable brokers will tell you the truth. You know, they'll give you pricing guidance. And, and they'll tell you really, they'll be fairly transparent. Unfortunately, there's a there's another subset of, of brokers where you're going to get all kinds of stories. But I'd say that that smaller population of brokers. And as you're underwriting these deals, what types of the key metrics are you looking for while doing the underwriting? Well, I'd say we're looking at the existing expenses. We're seeing is there is there some sort of management play? Are they high? Are they low? Does something sort of stand out of the norm on a line 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 level basis? We're looking at obviously what kind of occupancy they've had if it's below normal. Again, that's an indicator of what's going on. You look at the metrics of the market. So are they at market? You know, if the market's at 95% occupancy and they're at 85, that tells you there's something going on. We look a lot at, a lot of our deals are value add. So we're looking at, you know, where does the asset sort of fall into the market? Is it below market in rents? Is it below market in finishes, right? Where is the opportunity? So knowing and being uh, being honest with yourself, I think is, is really important, I think. We see a lot of syndicators get so excited about the deal, they end up selling themselves. They say, well, you know, look at look at ABC apartments down the street. They're getting $1,000 a month. We certainly can get $1,000 a month. I think you have to be honest with yourself. ABC apartments down the street has a pool. You don't, you know, or uh, they have in-unit in, in washer and dryers. We don't. So you really have to be honest and granular to that, that level because you have to put yourself in the mindset of a renter. And if you're out there looking, you have multiple choices, the washer and dryer will make a difference or a walk-in closet or some units have a balcony, have some outdoor space. So I think that's where deals die or or actually, you know, make it to contract is all those granular little data points that you plug into your modeling and you do it honestly and, and, uh, and accurately. So yeah, from a 10,000 foot level, those are some of the things that we look at. Well, have you had to tweak your underwriting a little bit during COVID? Yeah, relative to, to what I mentioned before is you can't just imagine that during COVID, you're going to be able to push rent three, three to five percent, where some markets enjoyed that for the last however many years. You, I mean, you still may in certain markets due to supply and demand, but I think that's reckless. So, of course, we're going to be much more conservative on really everything. We're going to be conservative on on rent growth. We're going to be conservative on expenses. So, yeah, that 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 definitely takes a, a different different type of underwriting today. But as I say, you know, that's a that's something that we're going to look at heavily in year one. We're going to we're going to underwrite for a different uh, outcome in year one, and we're all guessing and hopeful, of course, and more hopeful as of late 
that COVID is going to be behind us and with a vaccine, that that type of conservatism is necessary for the next 12 months. But after that, we're we're defaulting back to where is where is the market in terms of rent growth and the rest of the metrics that are fairly predictable. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. And so right now you own over 1,700 apartment units in different capacities, both as a limited partner, co-GP, and a key principal. Of those areas, which areas do you like to participate in the most and why? Yeah, good, good question. So I would say, I, you know, this is a fairly natural progression. I started as a limited partner investing in deals, but I did it a little bit differently. I came in getting to know the sponsors. I also was probably much more involved than a typical limited partner. I also came in with substantial. I was, you know, fortunate. I did well in my in my other life, my business, but I came in with substantial investments. So I think I got much more attention and involvement in those deals, even as an LP. So that's where I started. And then I started partnering with some of those actual guys that I invested in originally and and took a more active role because of my construction background, successful real estate development business for 20 years. We partnered on deals together. So, you know, I was called a a minor minority role general partner. And then those relationships and others flourished into much more meaningful where I found the deal or they found a deal. We came together. We, we took down the deal together and own it together. In terms of the KP, when, when I think about a key principle on some opportunities, I've actually helped newer syndicators take down those deals and have lent them my net worth and liquidity, my balance sheet in essence, so they can qualify for, the, for an agency loan. So I've done that as a sort of a, a relationship. And so I'm involved, but really from a back seat. So what is my favorite? I mean, really the two main models today is that we're the lead sponsor, we find the deal. We're one of the two other avenues where someone else will find the deal. They'll bring us in and we're shoulder to shoulder partners on on the deal. Awesome, thank you so much for sharing that. And so currently what's your next focus for you, Alex? Next focus is really to continue to, to grow Ashland Capital. We have four or five interesting deals in the pipeline. So we're always looking to increase our investor pipeline. So we're out there meeting people who want to join us on these opportunities. So it's really just organically to grow that, to, to manage our projects well, and to probably buy three to four assets this, this coming year, and then increase that slowly the following year. We're not looking to be huge. So I think we'll, I want to be a, a smaller, successful boutique owner-operator. Thank you so much for that. And how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? It's been a game changer. I mean, it's 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 something that I wish I would have done at a, at a larger scale, more meaningfully earlier in my life. But, you know, like like most people, you're busy with your day job. And, and mine was intense. I had 35 employees and hundreds of subcontractors. So, and that was, that's what was paying the bills. So I was totally focused. But as I started to have more time and resources and capital to invest, it was it was uh, it was life changing. I mean, it allowed me to take advantage of tax efficiencies with real estate that helped offset some of my income through the operating business, and ultimately got me to a place, along with the success of my of the company that I sold, to not have to work ever again. But I can't imagine not working. I love to work and I love real estate. So, but you know, technically, I have a choice not to. And I think that's what everybody strives for is is the is the freedom of choice. And, and that's what it's done for me. What is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? That 
larger acquisitions and apartments are not as not as difficult and 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 I, I wish I wasn't as intimidated as I was when I was just starting out because yeah as it's become a more popular asset class you could see so many people doing it and many uh, are successful at it so I wish I would have started younger and and with larger larger assets rather than single family I mean Single family is fine, but I would have been further along had I not. And what is one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I would say commitment, right? Commitment, focus, and not giving up because it's a it's a business that can punch you in the gut on a daily basis, challenges with, with everywhere you turn. So it's just not giving up, continuing to take you know one step after the other. Moving forward every day, that probably is the single most important thing that you can do. Take action, even if it's small steps, but but do it consistently and don't get discouraged. And what tools or techniques have you used to improve the efficiency of your business or your personal life? Good people on my team. So uh, Eric on my team is incredible in terms of leveraging other people's skill sets. There's certain things that someone who's in their mid to late 20s is so much better than me and leverage his technology skills. I'm uh, sort of get my get my hands dirty and be on the ground with an asset with my construction background. So hiring the right people and 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 we utilize all that technology. So that that's been great for me to leverage my time. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Alex. And if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and the different opportunities that you're offering with Ashland, where can they go to find out more? Sure, it's ashlandcapitalfund.com. Go to my website and contact us. We have a tab on the website with current deals so you can pull those down from the website and see our current offerings. Be happy to schedule a call and chat with anyone who's interested. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alex. I really appreciate having you on the show today. Yeah, it was great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.